welcome back to another episode of Behind the Future. I am your host, Maeve McCrossan. And I am the other host, Sarah Durbin. On this podcast, we discuss the history of absolutely everything, from the smallest objects to the largest movements. And exactly why they're relevant to us today. Every week we'll have two stories. One of us discusses a small piece of history in a short and sweet nutshell, while the other delves into a chunky story exploring a larger historical topic. Best of all, neither one of us knows what the other will talk about. So if you liked history class in school, then this is probably the podcast for you. But if you liked the two class clowns running commentary of those classes, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Welcome to Behind the Future. Welcome back or welcome first time. If you are a first time listener, you're very welcome to episode 49, I believe. 49 episodes, wowee. And believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, in case you gave a shit, I said the intro off by heart for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I shit. That was good. I can never do it. God, Thanks. I could barely say it there and I had it in front of me. I don't know what's <laughs> happening with my mouth lately, but I can't talk like I used to be able to. You know what? I don't think all my teeth fit in my mouth. I've never said that out loud. I really don't. I truly <laughs> believe that my teeth don't fit in my mouth. And lately I've been noticing it. Like, oh, I feel like I have two. That's I sound like a psychopath. so funny because I also don't think I, uh, my teeth, now that you say it, because I had braces once upon a time and they actually advised to extract four teeth, two from the top and two from the bottom and then enclose the rest of the teeth. And only for I, I was coming up to my leave insert exam. Yeah. Leaving cert series if everyone tuned in. That is what I'm talking about. Throwback. The end of near exam. <laughs> Throwback. Yeah, only for I was coming up to that and I would have to take like a month off um, school ah. like to recover. And yeah. uh, I was like, I can't do that. So they were like, okay, we'll just, we'll just force them all together. <laughs> yeah, you literally can't do that though. Like, you know, for... Oh yeah, it was in- April or something like that. It was, it, oh, we were going God. up to the end and I was like... Are you serious? And they sprung it on me. Okay. By the way, and if anyone's been to an orthodontist, please tell me you've had this experience because anyone I've spoke to that has gone to an orthodontist, they'll just spring things up at you. They'll just be like, oh, you need surgery. Oh, you need an extra bar in your mouth that will last another six months. And you're like, "Uh, are we not going to do what we originally agreed? Did I ever tell you this? I had braces as well, but I went to a, like a cosmetic dentist. So that oh. was clear braces, like clear aligners. Oh, nice. Not nice. They no? were insane. And they're very, <laughs> okay, listen. Okay, I'm so, okay. Do you know what? Actually, no, I'm actually going to say it because this really annoys me. The two dentists that I went to are very well known in like the clear braces, like circles, right? They move in these <laughs> circles and they're well known. And they... I've heard this story before. They really <laughs> desperately wanted money off me. Like every time I went in, mm. they were like, so do you want X, Y, Z? Do you want this? Do you want that? And I was like, no, I don't even want the braces. My mom is making me be here. I was like 18 and my mom had saved up for these braces and she was like, do you want them? And I was like, no, do you want them? And like, I never wore my retainer. Like My poor mom, I feel so bad, but I warned her. I was like, you're not going to get what you want out of this situation. My teeth are fine like my teeth were fine everything is fine about me anyways they were just really strange and every time I went without my mom they tried to pressure me into getting another add-on that would require oh, more money that's really sly that's really it sly. was very sly and it was very obvious as well and so like 
they took before pictures of my teeth, which again, my teeth were absolutely fine. It was a very, very minor. I had them on for less than nine months, like these clear razors. Oh, wow. That they is were so, really They were quick. fine. Any dentist that my mom brought me to before was like, she doesn't need braces. And my mom was like, well, I disagree. I don't, not that my mom thinks my teeth are ugly. It's just my mom really wanted braces herself. And my sister had braces and she was like, do you want braces? And I was like, no. And my mom was like, yeah, do. Oh my God. Um, that's really nice though. I begged my parents for my braces. I was really? like, please. Yeah. I was like, please give me braces. Cause I didn't, I couldn't get them publicly, even though my teeth were bad. Like I had such an overbite my canines to this day even after the braces are like protruding canines they're so like they annoying not no they, they, they were worse back in the day i tell you i was like a vampire like, yeah <laughs> and like they i couldn't get them publicly so i did i begged and to be fair um when we did go to the orthodontist he was like yeah you have such an overbite you really need you really do need braces and threw on the train tracks and seven eight ten years later i'm looking smashing (laughs) (laughs) so are you familiar with the roe versus wade case no so the roe versus wade case i'm not going to go into that actual case and you're probably like what is she going to go into then the roe versus wade case was a landmark American legal case in which the US Supreme Court ruled in 1973 that individual state laws banning abortion were unconstitutional. So it was a huge, huge case where they removed a lot of the laws within like all 50 United States. Now it's different state to state still, but they did remove quite a, like a lot of the laws that completely banned people from getting a safe abortion. Hmm. So I don't know why. I just got really curious and I was like, who is Roe and who is Wade? So Jane Roe is who I'm going to be talking about today. Jane Roe was the pseudonym of Norma McCorvey and she was the plaintiff in the landmark American legal case, Roe versus Wade. So she was Jane Roe. So Norma was born in September 1947 in Louisiana in a town called Simsport, um, which like Louisiana at this time would have been really... Um, conservative and her family moved to Houston, Texas when she was a little bit older. Her father left their family when she was about 13 years old and she and her younger brother were raised by her mother. Her mother was abusive and dealt with alcoholism for most of her life. So it was evident like throughout Norma's life that there were problems in the home from Norma's behaviour. So for example, when she was 10 years old she robbed the till at a petrol station so that she could run away to Oklahoma with her best friend. They somehow convinced an employee at a hotel in Oklahoma City to let them rent a room and they remained like undetected for a couple of days. But then they were reported to the police when a housekeeper walked in on them. They were kissing in the room, these two little girls. At right? 10 Which years is like old? 10 years old. Kissing oh. in the room. Yeah. Wow. That like, made me a little bit uncomfortable when I read that. Mm. So after this, she was made a ward of the state. She was taken away from her mother and she was sent to a couple of state-run institutions, including the State School for Girls in Gainesville, Texas. She was in this institution on and off from ages 11 to 15. She said later in life that this was the happiest time of her childhood was when she was in this particular school. Um, She would go home to like visit her mom, but she would always act out when she visited her mom to go, to get sent back. Oh. 
When she was 15, she was officially released from the school and she was sent to live with her mother's cousin, who unfortunately was allegedly raping her, um, like very, very regularly. So she had no kind of peace when she was away from the school. She had not Um, a chance, that poor child. She had no chance. she didn't. She really didn't. I felt like the more I read into this, the more compassion I had for this woman. So when she was 16, she met a guy called Woody McCorvey, um, whose name she took. He was seven years older than she was. And she married him while she was still 16 years old. And then like not long after, she ended up leaving him because she accused him of assaulting her. And she had to move back in with her mother, who, of course, did not have a good, they didn't have a good relationship. So that entire thing was unfortunate. So not long after she moved in with her mother, she gave birth to her first child, Melissa, in 1965. And it's said that right around the same time, she developed an addiction to drugs and she developed a drinking problem. And also around the same time, she came out as a lesbian. There was this big incident where Norma's mom was looking after Melissa while Norma went out of town. Um, She just went for like a, it sounds like a weekend away with some of her friends. Nice. But Norma's mom, yeah. <laughs> Finally, she gets Rest- some restrictions joyful are lifted. <laughs> restrictions oh my God. county. <laughs> just wait. She went out of town. It seems like it was agreed upon that Norma's mom would look after Melissa. But Norma's mom ended up calling the police to say that Norma had abandoned the baby. Um, so then Norma's mom hid Melissa from her for, I think, three months, I saw one source say, and ended up being able to trick Norma into signing adoption papers, letting her become the sole guardian of the child. Oh my god. She told her that these were like insurance papers and Norma just signed them and was like, okay, move on. Like she didn't read them. She, she like she admitted she did not read what she was signing. And after this, Norma was kicked out of her mom's house. So Norma fell pregnant again about a year and a half later at the age of 18, but she was able to place that child up for adoption. And then in 1969, she became pregnant for a third time. This time, she decided to seek an abortion in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Norma herself admitted that she decided along with some friends that it was maybe in her best interest to tell medical professionals at the time that she was raped by a group of black men specifically, like specifically black men, because Dallas at this time would have been pretty conservative. Oh my God, she's going to she's gonna tell them, but she wasn't, is that? She, she wasn't. wasn't. No, <gasps> no, she wasn't. What a so way she to told- twist the system though. Like yeah. what a way to use the system to your advantage, even though it's like against you. You know what I mean? Like at whatever cost she wanted to get an abortion. So she kind of used this to her advantage and it sounds like she did have a good good enough chance of this working in her favor um but because there is no evidence at all of this alleged attack she made it all up um the police had to just throw out the entire investigation and then because of that norma was denied a legal abortion so then she started seeking out an illegal abortion but she was unable to find a clinic that had not been shut down by the police apparently this was a a really big problem where these illegal clinics were popping up but the police were kind of at this time in history. They were just on it, like they were looking for them. So eventually she visited the Dallas lawyers, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey. They had intended on challenging this law that made abortion illegal. And it sounds to me like they were looking for someone in this exact situation to use. It's worth noting that Norma had gone to an adoption lawyer and 
she wanted to just see what her options were, even though she had, she was pretty determined that she wanted an abortion. But the adoption lawyer actually referred her to these two lawyers in particular. This may have been because it was well known that Weddington and Coffey were looking for a case like this to serve a larger purpose. They gave her the pseudonym Jane Roe, which was a variation of Jane Doe, what you would name a, well not you, like a person, uh, whatever, would name an unidentified victim, usually of murder. You'd name them Jane Doe. They filed a lawsuit against the district attorney at the time, and his name was Henry Wade. So that's the Roe and that's the Wade. Norma had signed papers, she said, without reading them again. Can you believe it? Oh, um, come on now, Norma. Fool me once. She had... she signed papers without reading them she didn't understand what the case would entail and at this time she was five months pregnant so really annoyingly at least for me when I was reading this the take the case took three years so like Norma in the meantime had the baby and had to place it up for adoption oh my god yeah this didn't serve Norma at all when you think about it. And she never attended a trial. She was completely anonymous. She never had to attend a trial. They kind of did use her. So in 1973, after the trial officially ended, which in the trial they overturned anti-abortion laws in all 50 states, so it was successful, she went public and told the media that she was Jane Roe and that she had been attacked and that she wanted an abortion due to severe depression. In 1994, she publishes an autobiography called I Am Roe. It was just telling her story, basically. And at this point, she had admitted to the media that she was lying about being attacked. This didn't have any bearing on the actual case, but it did turn the public's opinion of her sour. In 1995, so this was around the time where she was going on a book tour. Until this, she had been a strong advocate for the pro-choice movement. She spoke at pro-choice gatherings. She worked at a pregnancy clinic to help counsel women on their options. And so this seemed like a really sudden change for a lot of people. In August 1995, she announced that she was completely distancing herself from pro-choice activism work. She voiced remorse for her part in the Supreme Court decision. She said she completely regretted it and she called herself a pawn for abortion activists. She also publicly stated that she wasn't a lesbian anymore. She wrote a second book called One by Love about her kind of change of opinion. And then in 1998, she converted to Roman Catholicism. In 2004, she wanted the US Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. So she made an appeal. She said that was because she now understands that there was more evidence that abortions were harmful to women. But the Supreme Court looked over this evidence and dismissed it in 2005. And she was openly supportive of pro-life and anti-abortion politicians. She... What? What a yeah, She did a, a full 180. She protested when Barack Obama spoke at the Roman Catholic University of Notre Dame in 2009. She was arrested at Senate hearings while she was protesting against a pro-choice candidate, Sonia Sotomayor. She got into the Supreme Court and she was protesting this and she got um, arrested. And then she also made television advertisements against Barack Obama in 2012, accusing him of murdering babies. So Norma died of heart failure in Katy, Texas on February 18th, 2017, when she was 69. Wow, what a woman. What a story. So I'm going to give you a word, Mavan, and I'm talking about okay. a very iconic figure in history. And I'm going to give you one word and you guess mm. who I'm going to talk about. Wives. Oh, um, Henry VIII. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness, I'm so King Henry I was, was going to say, that guy from Say Yes to the Dress, what's his name? The glasses <laughs> I'm talking about. That's the first guy that popped into my head after like polygamy and Mormonism <laughs> and the other stuff that shouldn't pop into anyone's head. Your man. What's his name? That's going to annoy me. Well, you were right, my man. I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know why <laughs> Say Yes to the Dress. Uh... But King Henry VIII is who I am going to tell you all about today. Randy. Randy Finoli is that guy's name. I'm so sorry. But I'm ready for Henry VIII. I'm so what, ready. What connection with the wives does that, does he have? Ah, uh, bridal. Bridal <laughs> fashions. It's, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an outlandish word tree. The Randy from Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> Imagine. I, I mean, just, uh, he might have an interesting life, but let's not let's not diss him. But Henry Tudor had a fantastically interesting life, and it began on the twenty eighth of June, fourteen ninety one, and he was the third child and second son of Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York. Only four of the king and queen's seven children survived infancy, which included Henry, his older brother Arthur, older sister Margaret and younger sister Mary. Not much is known about Henry's early life as he was not expected to become king. He was the spare. So he, oh, yeah, the younger brother, so they didn't really follow him or document his didn't life. Care about him. Yeah. No pictures. <laughs> Literally. No book. In, in everything, almost everything I read, listened to, they were like, yeah, he just kind of was just like waiting there <laughs> to be used Aww. if necessary. Uh, but we know that he received a first rate education and became fluent in Latin and French. And it was believed he was a bright and charming young royal. He was kind of a favorite um, of the public. Like Harry. Like Harry, the spare is actually, yeah, the spare the has spare. more like charisma. <laughs> That's two examples, but you know what I mean? Um, Harry and Henry the Eighth. Harry, and, Harry and Henry, I'm telling you guys, they're the ones you want like, to look at. He's out, in a <laughs> In 1501, his brother Arthur, at the age of 15, married Catherine of Aragon. This was to strengthen England's alliance with Spain in an effort to form an Anglo-Spanish alliance against France. However, five months later, Arthur died from what is estimated to be sweating sickness, um, which is basically a disease, you know, that struck England during this period. In 1503, the unprepared 12-year-old Henry was made Prince of Wales. And unfortunately, his mother died during childbirth in February 1503, same year. Childbirth of trying to create another spare, mind you. Trying to, <laughs> the spare was now being used. So they were like, okay, we need to make another spare. Um, but unfortunately, she passed away. And this actually had a profound effect on Henry because he maintained a pretty close relationship with her. During this time also, it was suggested that Henry marry Catherine to maintain the alliance with Spain, but he opposed this immediately. Despite this, Henry VII and Catherine's parents betrothed them shortly after Arthur's death on the basis that their marriage had not been consummated. King Henry VII then had become an extremely paranoid um, ruler and began imposing heavy and frequent fines on various noblemen. 
On the 21st of April 1509, he died and his son exceeded him to the joy of many people in the kingdom. Soon after his father's death, Henry decided he would marry Catherine to maintain the alliances forged with Spain. He was 17 and she was 23 at the time of their marriage. It's also speculated that he he had grown fond of her because she'd hung around. She'd been been at court and he liked her. It's kind of nice. It sounds weird to be like, Oh, it's yeah. so good that he had a his brother's widow cordial relationship with his sister-in-law, <laughs> yeah. and then they got married. <laughs> nice so romance, huh? Love that. Uh, oh, and bear in mind they're all related as well. Like all of them are like good. at least distant cousins. <laughs> oh, I was hoping they would be good. Now yeah. I can enjoy the rest of the story. <laughs> um. So he was coronated just before his 18th birthday. He was an immediately popular king. He was young, handsome, and as I said, had been a favourite in the public eye previously. Catherine soon bore several stillborn children from around 1510 to 1515, but finally gave birth to their only surviving child, Mary, in February 1516. Bloody Mary, as we know her as. Can I tell, like, a really dumb story? Do it. It's going to take two seconds. Um, Myself and my boyfriend went to a music festival in Spain a few years ago. And there was this one particular morning we were sitting in this restaurant. We were eating pizza for breakfast. Let's not talk about it. But you could order cocktails with your breakfast. And of course we did. But there was this girl, like a few tables. I mean, maybe like five, ten tables back from us. She was quite far away. Um, but she laughed really, really hard. And at one point we listened back to her and she was trying to order a drink to this poor Spanish waiter who really didn't have any English. And she was screaming and she was going, a bloody Mary, I want a bloody Mary. It's tomato and it's vodka. And it just, like we sometimes look at each other like, bloody Mary. It was so funny. Bloody Mary and her mother were not as happy towards the, yeah, towards the mid-1510s because Henry had multiple mistresses who produced Mm -hmm. several illegitimate children. In the early days of his reign, King Henry participated in costumed dances, wrote plays and sung. But this was to the displeasure of his inherited council who had began denying certain expenditures. Apparently he was quite generous as well. He would just throw money at everything. And this friction surmounted when Henry expressed desire to invade England's rival France, which would evidently ensue extreme costs. The council feared the king's desire for glory and his obsessive desire to be recognised as an iconic figure. And he was, but for all the wrong reasons in the end. Mm. Advisor and close friend of Henry's, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, took advantage of this scenario and convinced Henry to go above the council for this matter. A convenient reason to invade France came about in 1511 when Pope Julius II pleaded for help after feeling threatened by a French invasion. England then formed an alliance with King Ferdinand V of Spain, and Maximilian I of the Holy Roman Empire against Louis XII of France. 
The Pope also indicated, should they be successful, he would actually coronate Henry the, quote, most Christian king of France, unquote, in Paris. He would coronate himself. So he would ultimately be the king of England and France if he won this. So Henry was like, yeah. (laughs) So on June 30th, 1513, Henry invaded France. And quickly defeated the French in the Battle of the Spurs in Therome, North France, a place in North France. His <laughs> absence allowed for his brother-in-law, James VI of Scotland, who had allied with France, Scotland and France are great pals, to invade England. However, the English army overseen by Queen Catherine defeated the Scots in September 1513. Though Henry had received a sense of victory he desired through these campaigns, he received very little else. England had lost vast amounts of money in supporting Spain and Italy. And with the replacement of Pope Julius II with Pope Leo X, he basically wanted peace with France. So he was like, nah, I'm not up for knighting you the king or coronating you the king. Mm. And so Henry just decided to sign a treaty with France and withdraw from the war himself. Cardinal Wolsey diplomatically assisted in arranging the Treaty of London after this in 1518, which would secure peace for many Western European regions against the growing Ottoman threat. So Henry couldn't be the great warrior king that took France. Maybe he could be the great peacekeeping king. Maybe that could be his thing. Could fit into the peace club. Okay. That could be his iconic thing, I guess. He's just trying to be the main character. He's trying to be the main character in his own story. Like, and Cardinal Wolsey's just trying to help him out. No way. Cardinal Wolsey wanted that dollars. (laughs) Do your thing. Hey, whatever floats your boat, do it. You want to take over Europe? Hey. You you go, man. No skin off my ass. <laughs> <laughs> More power to ya. <laughs> We're yes men on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so... Oh, God, we're such nerds. Um, (laughs) To ensure this treaty was recognized by England and France, the field of the cloth of gold was held in June 1520. And the way I can describe this event is basically a my dick is bigger than your dick kind of competition. Sometimes they need to happen. I mean... There's a lot of testosterone going around during this time in Europe. And uh, that's exactly what it was. Basically, it was just a very lavish summit in which the two kings, now King Francis I of France with King Henry, they basically just displayed their wealth. And that was it. They just showed each other how much wealth they had, compared dicks, told each other about how uh, how great well, they I've were. I've got a trampoline. <laughs> and it has no room. net. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are so dumb. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, they did want to ensure the alliance between the two countries was maintained. But it, this wasn't a success at all. The the compare the dick comparison was was a failure because the two were too 
eager to be superior over the other that they didn't get along. Mm. So instead, Henry had more of an interest in forming a stronger alliance with Charles V of the Habsburg Empire. This guy had the biggest dick in Europe because he was the king of Spain, the Holy Roman Empire. He was the Archduke of Austria, the Duke of Burgundy and the Lord of the Netherlands at this time. That has more hours in a day than the rest of us. He has more titles than I will ever have jobs in my life. Um, yeah. And he was actually betrothed to Henry's daughter, Mary. Uh, and the two kings oh, made yeah. a plan to invade plan, uh, to invade France as part of the plan. Yeah, really weird. I think Mary was a child at this point. And King Charles was a, a grown man, um, <laughs> to my knowledge. Oh, in 1521, they invaded France with little support from Charles. He kind of just was like, you go ahead, I'll catch up with you. The campaign had led England close to Paris. They got very far, but Charles was still like on the sidelines um, for the following year. So Henry basically pulled out because he was like, hey, you're not helping me out, man. But in 1525, then, Charles had captured King Francis at Pavia. And because Henry had pulled out, Charles felt he owed him nothing. They just lost a lot of money, again, invading France. Then, what does he do after that? The peace didn't work. The invading didn't work. Maybe I'll be a womanizer, (laughs) is what Henry must have said. After the expensive failure of this French military campaign and the lack of a male heir, Henry began to worry about his position as king. Henry had also grown a dislike for Catherine, as we mentioned earlier, because Charles V was actually her nephew. (laughs) So... Oh, yeah. Um, so I like oh. that that put a bad taste in Henry's mouth. And for her inability to perform her duty as well, she didn't give him a male heir. And in 1525, Henry had become infatuated with one of Catherine's ladies in waiting, Anne Boleyn. He had previously conducted an affair with her sister, Mary Boleyn, and is actually believed to may have even fathered two children with her. Not confirmed, because he didn't claim them. He's another one with more hours in the day than the rest of us. (laughs) Having children left, right and centre, like, oh my God, that's a long time as well, two children. And you're like, actually, your sister is looking very fine. Anne, however, <laughs> Anne was quite intelligent and quite a rem- bit remarkable for her time because she refused to be his mistress, which would be pretty intimidating to do, you know, refuse the king's attempts. But mm. uh, she said she obviously would be with him if he married her. And in order for Henry to do that, he would obviously have to leave Catherine in some way. So this stimulated the English Reformation or the Protestant Reformation, which would change the religious structure of England forever. I find this so funny because, and and there's so many historical debates. I read so many different sources debating, oh no, Henry actually had a preconceived idea that he wanted to change the religious structure in England because the Pope had too much power. And then I read other sources had no, like he was a devout Catholic, like he really admired the Pope, 
so much respect for the Pope until Anne Boleyn mm. came along. I agree with the latter based on what I've read and I've read quite a lot on him. Literally, this man just wanted to sleep with this woman and changed England's religious structure to do it. That is, uh, that's how uh, Protestantism came about in England. One man was very horny. <laughs> if he wanted to, he would, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> the thing on TikTok is like, if he wanted to, he would. I don't even get flowers anymore. And this guy is changing England. But uh, I just find that funny. So Cardinal Wolsey, who was responsabilized with this matter, began making appeals to the Pope. It is suggested that Henry believed his marriage to Catherine was invalid in the eyes of God as he acted contrary to Leviticus 20.21, which is, quote, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless, unquote, which they weren't, but they didn't have any surviving sons. Heirs, yeah. I don't believe he truly believed. I think he was using it as an excuse, but there you go. In 1527, Wolsey brought this to the attention of Pope Clement VII in the hopes that Henry could divorce Catherine. Courts were held with representatives in England and in the Vatican City, but after two years of trials, Cardinal Wolsey failed to convince the Pope to allow for the king's wishes, and Henry charged him with treason because of this. Um, but he died wait- awaiting trial in 1530. At this time, also, the Pope had acquired letters from an unknown source indicating the plans for Henry to marry Anne. So he knew about kind of their intentions. The Pope was like, this is not a religious matter. It's a romantic one. Absolutely not. Anne Boleyn is estimated to have played a part in the dissolution of Catholicism in England. It's it's the argument I stand by, personally, from what I've read. She disliked Cardinal Wolsey and felt the Pope was just delaying matters. She also had been exposed to and engaged with Protestant reformists. Henry began gathering theologians and scholars to create a case against the Pope. They began promoting to the people of England that the Pope's governing of the church was simply a takeover of what once had been a self-governing national English church. One source I listened to said this is a great example of where Euroscepticism erupts from. Anyone who was suspected of not supporting this view faced severe consequences. Henry appointed himself supreme head of the Church of England, reinforcing this with the Act of Supremacy in 1534. And so he was the head of the church. He approved the divorce. Pope Clement excommunicated England from the church a couple of of years later. Yeah. Uh, Fair play. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, if you're just going to do your own thing, okay, you can go and do your own thing. I'm not sure if Henry wanted that either. I don't know if he wanted to be excommunicated. I'm sure he didn't. He, I'd say he wanted to be included, but wanted as much power, if not more, than the Pope. But you can't have your cake and eat it, Henry. And you can't, you can't terminate the Pope. You would be in big trouble if you did that. (laughs) So... Henry, 41, and Anne, 32, wed in 1533. Jeez, that was a lot of numbers. You could hear me struggling there. 
And shortly after this, Anne was given the title of Queen Consort. Henry and Catherine's marriage was declared null and void and the former queen was stripped of her title, became Dowager Princess of Wales and remained in isolation, banned from seeing her daughter until her death in January 1536. Well, there is no need for that. Why couldn't you see your daughter? Why couldn't? Why? Why? Why isolation? Why? Because uh, neither Catherine nor Mary would recognise Anne as Queen of England. They they remained loyal to their oh. view that Catherine was always the queen, the rightful Queen of England. So yeah. many people across England did. Even people in Henry's own council remained loyal to the fact that Catherine was the queen, regardless of his marriage to Anne Boleyn, regardless of this Reformation. Catherine was the queen. There was a lot of Catholic citizens like still in England at this time. So it wouldn't have been like a quick switch. This was a, this caused a lot of turbulence. And then they didn't even, they didn't even have a happy marriage. Like they ended up not really liking each other, Henry and Anne. She did give birth to a girl, Elizabeth, in September 1533. After the marriage, there was a period of consolidation. The Reformation Parliament aimed at finding solutions to any remaining issues while convincing the public of their legitimacy and dealing with opponents. Like I said, strong out process. And in May 1532, Catholic Lord Chancellor Thomas More resigned to Protestant Thomas Cromwell. Monasteries were dissolved completely and their riches were placed in the royal coffers, went down horribly with a lot of people Mm. the act of succession 1533 declared mary illegitimate catherine's daughter and anne's offspring as next in line however as i mentioned the couple did not get on she had further miscarriages and suspected false pregnancies henry had begun affairs with other women including 28 year old jane seymour Henry also began executing those who did not acknowledge him as the supreme head of the church, uh, including Thomas More, the former Lord Chancellor, in 1535. These guys were his friends, supposedly, as well. Mm. They were very close to him. In 1536, Henry had experienced a traumatic accident during a jousting match, which almost led to his death and badly injured his leg. And it halted his activity greatly in his life. This combined with his growing obesity would deteriorate his health enormously. This actually caused Anne as well, the news of him receiving this injury to go into a miscarriage. She miscarried a boy 15 weeks. In May 1536, Anne Boleyn, along with her brother and other accused men, were executed for treasonous adultery and incest. Henry was just like, wipe my hands of you. Um, Yeah. And 10 days later, 10 days later, the king married Jane Seymour. And in (gasps) October 1537, Jane gave birth to a boy named Edward. Why did I think there was more before he got his son? Was Jane Seymour his last wife? No. No, he has three more wives after this. But she died from complications of childbirth. Okay. That at least answers that question. Because I was thinking, like, why did he... Did, is that not game over? Is that not, like, he finished the last... He got his son, What he wanted no. to do? No, he or decided th- three women would not be enough. He would have three more. <laughs> and so... Reasonable. 
Who wouldn't in this position? <laughs> if you think about it. God. If you think you've oh, relationship yeah. problems, just think about what this is going through this guy's head. Yeah. 25-year-old. <laughs> and like, sorry, but also biggest hypocrite in the world. <laughs> biggest hypocrite in the world. He was having all these affairs and then the minute... Um, and she wasn't even suspected of having them. I think he totally conjured that up. And he actually tortured mm-hmm. people to confess that they had affairs with Anne. So obviously they were going to say, say that they had affairs and they're being tortured. Um, was nobody like Henry? I think you should stop now. This is getting a bit ridiculous. Uh, they were scared, I'd say. Like, yeah, he'd probably kill them. You know. <laughs> he probably set up a religion so that everyone would want to kill them. Like, he could... He was very powerful. Think about it. He set up his own religion to change the laws on... Marriage. Divorce. That's insane. Yeah. Or married. That is insane. Cromwell suggested Henry marry 25-year-old Anne of Cleves, the sister of a German duke. Once Henry received a portrait of Anne, he was very happy. He agreed to marry her. But he was quickly deterred upon her arrival, despite having been engaged to her. And the marriage only lasted six months with Henry divorcing Anne on the grounds that they had just never consummated the marriage. And he was the head of the oh. church. He could do what he wanted now. So. Well, that's true. He's head of <laughs> He took the remote control and he was like, I'm not giving yeah. it back. <laughs> <laughs> so Cromwell was beheaded shortly after this. Um, now, it's not known if it's directly linked to the recommendation of Anne. He was a really bad wingman. But yeah, he was he was executed after this. The tyrannical Henry commenced regular burnings um, of heretics who opposed his new domestic policies. He had also become infatuated with 17-year-old Catherine Howard. 17, okay? Uh, Whom he married in July 1540. So he would have been about... That's too much math. Never mind, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) however Catherine had an affair shortly after the marriage believe it or not Catherine had the affair this time everyone the new 17 year old on the scene had an affair shortly before the marriage and then another one after the marriage with a courtier called Thomas Culpepper so Catherine was beheaded in February 1542 Henry was livid and he had the men she had an affair with executed as well. Henry married his last wife, Catherine Parr, in July 1543. Parr was a Protestant and attempted to sway Henry's policies, which were kind of a combination of Catholic and Protestant features. Like his new religion was kind of a bit of both. Kind of whatever he liked (laughs) from both, I'd say. I believe it. Kind of like when you get two scoops in of ice cream, your two different flavors, your favorite ones. I'll get bubblegum and chocolate. That is the weirdest flavor combination. Bubblegum and chocolate. Mm-hmm. Really insane. Because nice. when I was a kid, my favorite color was blue, but my favorite ice cream was chocolate. So I was conflicted. Um, Catherine Parr is also credited with bringing Henry closer to his daughters. And with the 1543 Third Succession Act, they were formally placed in line behind their stepbrother. So they could inherit the throne. 
1544, an extremely unhealthy Henry decided to invade France again <laughs> due to the ongoing wars with Scotland. There's numbers of, of reasons, but I think Henry was like, I'm going to give this one last shot. Bear in mind, Henry, ever since the accident, is obese. Yeah. His leg was, I heard some horrible, disgusting uh, descriptions of it. It was just really gammy. I'll put it like that. Uh, but he yeah. still, and, and even I read one source that said he had to have like mechanical things to help him on his horse and to help him move around and things oh, like that. Wow. They shortly lay siege to Boulogne in France with Henry actually taking personal command. He was there. However, once again, the Allies deserted Henry. They just kind of left him to his own accord. And that he once again just found another treaty with France. And once again, England was bankrupt. In 1547, a 55-year-old Henry passed away obese, covered in painful boils and possibly suffering from gout. His son, Edward VI, succeeded him, but died just five years later. He was succeeded by Mary, who attempted to steer the country back in the direction of the Pope, but she died in 1558. And her younger sister, Elizabeth, embraced reform as queen, serving 45 years and solidifying England as a Protestant state. That is the tyrannical arguably abusive, crazy, what the hell are we thinking, King of England, Henry VIII. I think it's so interesting how much his like marriages took up of his life. Yeah. Right? Is that silly to say? I just felt like, like when you were talking about like the first marriage and then like the invasions and stuff like that, I thought there'd be more in between. There were a lot of foreign policies. I suppose what was taking up his time was the the English Reformation was the pinnacle of his existence. Like he, yeah. he really did. And yes, that was because of a marriage. And also marriage in this time as well is a diplomatic. Is yeah, a, that's it, true actually. It's a diplomatic, it's a political entity. It's not um, a romantic one. Well, in the case of Anne Boleyn, possibly. I don't see what political gain he was going to get from that. But even the other ones like Anne of Cleves, that was diplomatic as well. That is King Henry. And Jane Roe. Oh, wow. Jane yeah. Roe and King Henry. What a what a combination. I don't know if we've done two people before, actually. Have have we done two people? Has that been an episode before? I don't think we have. Hmm. I don't think we have. I don't have any people planned now for the next couple of ones because I did two people. I also did people recently, so I may do my my next next week's one is good. People should definitely get ready for that little nutshell. Here. It's funny. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I haven't researched it yet. I think it's going to be funny. <laughs> I am so excited. We'll find out next oh, week. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. Sarah. It was. I enjoyed that. Well done, my van. We should well do done, this again We should do this again soon, yeah. everyone. <laughs> next we one. Do this again. Um, don't forget to check us out on the socials. We are Behind the Future Pod on Instagram and Future underscore Behind on Twitter. Go like, share, follow, subscribe. You know what we want. And remember, don't forget. 
Goodbye, Salon. Thanks for listening.